So have you ever had to go through, go through something that you really dreaded? If you think of something that you just had on your horizon that you really dreaded, or probably more realistically, an especially intense occasion in which you had something that you had to deal with that filled you with worry or apprehension or foreboding. And so one of my worst was when I was sued in Peru as president of our mission. And this man that we were trying to help, we considered it a mercy, uh, he got together with a family member who was a lawyer and they figured out a way to sue us for failure to comply with employment regulations in the country. And so they spun a tale that really ended up amounting to a lot of money for our mission and it dragged on for about a year and it became like background noise for me every day I'd go to bed at night and I'd think about it. I'd wake up in the morning and it would say hello to me. And I, we finally got this court date. And so I couldn't wait just for it to be over. And yet at the same time, I just dreaded having to appear before the judge. And all these fears were in my mind, you know, could I explain things well enough in Spanish? Would a lot of money from the mission be lost? Would the deck be too stacked against us as a foreign mission? All these things were just overwhelming to me as I considered that. Well, as significant as that was to me, our passage today, Jesus speaks of something like infinitely more, more weighty and something that really filled him with dread to think that the Son of God would feel dread. And he couldn't wait for it to be over. And our passage also speaks of an event that, that you and I will face one day, whether we are mindful of it or not, but it's an event that Jesus says we must, but even better, we can have settled now before we ever arrive to that moment, which is incredible news. So hear God's word today in this passage that I've really been enjoying thinking through and meditating on this week, Luke 12, 49. Jesus speaking, continuing his sermon as Luke records it, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, a shower is coming. And so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be a scorching heat. And it happens. You hypocrites, 
You know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? And why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? As you go with your accuser before the magistrate, make an effort to settle with him on the way, lest he drag you to the judge and the judge hand you over to the officer and the officer puts you in prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. And you might not see a super amount of grace in that passage, but it's all through it. The grass withers, the flowers fade. And the word of our God endures forever, amen. So I have four points. The points are as follows. Jesus suffers distress. The second is that Jesus brings division. Third is Jesus urges discernment. And the fourth is Jesus presses us to make a decision. So first, Jesus suffers distress, verse 49 through 50. So in the previous section, if you recall last week, Jesus was talking to his disciples and us about the fact he's coming again, his second coming. He shifts here and he's talking to disciples and us about his first coming and the significance of that first coming. So he records a mission statement in verse 49, Jesus saying why he came. And that's not the only one Luke records. Luke records a number of mission statements and it's important for us to take note of them. Two of the most important one being in 532, at the beginning of his public ministry, when Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then at the conclusion of his public ministry, entering into Jerusalem, he gives a similar mission statement, like bookends to a similar group of people. And he says, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Mission statement of Jesus thanks be to God, that Jesus came into the world to go after the neediest, the sinner, the lost. Grace goes down to the lowest point, and it has to for us. And however, the missing statement in verse 49 is distinct, isn't it? At least, I mean, it even appears contradictory to these two precious, dear mission statements, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. And so we ask, you know, like what does that mean? Like how does that relate to the other two? And so fire here is a symbol of judgment. Oftentimes is in scripture, so Jesus saying, I came to cast judgment on the earth. And so Jesus brings in time judgment into the present through his own person, through his own ministry. He came to bring fire. And so fire has a dual purpose in scripture. It both consumes things and it also cleanses things. So it destroys some things, it purifies other things. Jesus came to bring that sort of judgment. His judgment separates. It has a separating nature to it, and that's gonna lead in the next point. But it's like what chapter two, verse 34 said when Jesus was a little baby and that old man Simeon talked to Mary, holding her little baby, 
You imagine mothers with your little child and Simeon goes, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. He was like this point of contact that separated and divided. And so the fire of destruction will come upon those who reject him, but the fire of purification will come upon those who accept him. And Jesus wishes this judging work were already kindled, were already underway. And in a way, it's already going on in his public ministry. Right now, he's separating people. People are having to choose one way or the other with regard to him. But he's especially looking to what he's about to say in verse 50. And you see, verse 50 is parallel to this verse. It explains this mission statement further. And so in verse 50, Jesus goes on to say, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Such a stirring statement. And we learn from that that Jesus hasn't come just to cast fire on other people. He's especially come to suffer fire himself. He brings end time judgment down on himself. See, baptism was used in Greek literature to mean like to be overwhelmed by a disaster or a catastrophe or agony. We see similar things. I got flooded with problems. The image is being drowned in water. It's like the psalmist would say, 42.7, and that's the one, you know, um, Jonah quotes, all your breakers and waves have gone over me. Like, have you, have you ever felt that? Just got pummeled by God's waves. Or Psalm 124, similarly, then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. It's a, this inundation of trouble that would be pictured by the word baptism. And so this baptism Jesus must be baptized with, that he knows about, this flood of judgment he must endure, it intensely distressed him. And it's a really strong word. It means to attack, to torment, to fill with anguish. That that was the emotional life of our Lord as he said this. He's greatly distressed as he anticipates his baptism. Elsewhere in Mark, he equates that baptism with the cup he has to drink, that cup of wrath. And so you go to... Luke 22, the Garden of Gethsemane, he asked God, you know, can you let that cup pass? I'm, I'm, I'm peering into it, and it, it's, it, it's almost too much. And so Jesus is talking about the cross here. He's talking about at the cross, he's going to take the fire of God's punishment. It's like the fire of hell he will take into his person, and he's going to take the fire of that punishment in order that he can purify sinners of their sin. Like he combines both aspects of fire, the consuming and the cleansing. He'll be consumed in order that he can cleanse sinners. The fire he comes to cast on the earth is primarily one he himself will endure, not so much one that he will inflict. He came to take in time judgment for us. And 
Again, just see how it distresses him, the idea of being separated from his father in judgment. The word also means, and some commentators prefer this definition of that word distress. They say it means to absorb or preoccupy or consume your thinking. And so I think really both, you know, oftentimes the gospel writers will use a word that has a couple of senses because they want, like, everything's included. And so what it says is that the cross was never an accident. He didn't get derailed to the cross. It was his goal. So we have both ideas. The cross fills Jesus with dread, but the cross is also what he's dedicated to accomplishing. Okay, and that word accomplish is also rich. And it's the very word that Jesus will utter on the cross when he says, it is finished, to telestai, it's paid in full. So Jesus is saying, I dread it, but I'm dedicated to accomplishing this. It is finished on the cross, the wrath is paid in my person. And so Jesus' distress reveals to us today just the utter cost of the cross. He suffers the fire, the flood of judgment for all his people's sins. His distress also reveals his commitment to the cross. It was the goal, single-minded directness to go and take judgment for us. Incredible two verses. Jesus was distressed. And so Jesus brings division, verses 51 through 53, and this is an unsettling section. Jesus brings division, and so we encounter another, another mission statement, really, and it's, it's apparently contradictory again, where Jesus warns, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. And we like, look at that verse, and it doesn't seem to fit with who Jesus is. I mean, think of Isaiah, you know, Jesus One of his titles is Prince of Peace. Or think of Luke in in the birth narratives when this army of heaven appears to the angels and they chant this battle cry, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to men of God's favor. Or think of Paul in Ephesians when he summarizes the impact of Jesus's ministry this way, he made peace, like he made peace. So we go, that's the whole point of the cross is to make peace. And that was Jesus's goal. So how can he not be said to bring peace on earth here? At the cross, he takes God's wrath in order to reconcile us to God. Reconcile, you know, you make peace with somebody. So what sense did Jesus come not to make peace on earth? And he's countering a common Jewish view of the time of Messiah, that when Messiah came, that all of a sudden, immediately, this peace and tranquility and restoration would be ushered in to the Jewish nation and they would recover all their glory and the borders and everything that they once enjoyed. And Jesus is saying, I didn't bring, come to bring that sort of peace, but it's, it's even richer than that even because there's several things that Jesus means. And part of Jesus' coming to cast fire on the earth is that he will bring division. It's part of what casting fire means. And so if you remember back a couple of Sundays ago that 
this guy interrupts Jesus's sermon. Jesus is speaking about, about glory and he interrupts in 12:13 and goes, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. It's like, let's get down to my world. And Jesus responds, look, I'm not here to divide up earthly inheritance. Like, that's not why I'm sent. You have rabbis that can do that. I'm here to secure eternal inheritances. But, but when we think of that question, that, that guy speaks truer than he realizes. And sometimes the gospel writers like irony. And this is one of them, because Jesus is a divider. He doesn't fit in our little categories, our safe presuppositions. He divides. And so we see in our passage that Jesus came to bring division. And it's another mission statement. I came to divide. That's part of the fire he casts. And it's an aspect of his end time judgment that he brings into the present. And we can think of Matthew when at, one, at some point will stand before a throne and the Son of Man will gather everybody. And as a shepherd, he will separate sheep and goats. And that work is brought into the present in Jesus' ministry. And so see how it plays out in several ways. First, if, if Scripture is right, when it says that you and I are by nature children of wrath, and that we're prisoners of Satan's kingdom by nature, then Jesus must bring division in order to bring us out of that family and into his family, out of Satan's kingdom and into his own kingdom. Your, your very redemption demands division. Well, furthermore, Jesus didn't come here to give us a peaceful, tranquil life now. He never promised that. What he said is that you're not home yet, you're on the way to glory. And so in Acts 14, he says, through many trials, you will enter the kingdom of God. There will be trials. And Romans 7, for example, one of the worst trials is your own battle with sin until God takes you home. Oh, wretched man that I am. And that's part of the fire he brings because fire doesn't just consume. Again, it cleanses and purifies and sanctifies. Through those battles, God makes you different. But what Jesus probably especially means here is that those that reject and oppose him will also reject and oppose those who accept and embrace him. In fact, the message of Christ, the cross, the peace he accomplishes, instigates and incites even more opposition and anger when it is shared. And that's because the evil one hates Jesus and you love Jesus. And that's because the cross confronts people. Like the, the cross is scandalous. It, it, it like conflicts with our own sense of rightness and pride and self-sufficiency and personal righteousness. The cross tells you you're not good. It tells you you can't make it. You're, you're not enough. The cross says you're utterly dependent upon a redeemer to be right with God and nobody likes that until God's grace works 
a heart of realism and gratitude for the finished work of Jesus. And so Jesus says this division will enter into everything. Even if you can imagine it, it will enter into families, cut to the heart of families. It creates friction and tension as some family members turn to Jesus and others reject Jesus. And maybe they resent the family members who now have Jesus as their chief loyalty and not the family. So we look at this, we can understand how in a mission context, you know that somebody comes out of another religion and now the family's divided. That makes sense, but Jesus is speaking to Israelites. He's speaking to his disciples. He's speaking to covenant families. And I mean, we felt this, different ones of us felt this in our extended families of, of what, you know, what's going on with covenant families. And, and so we wonder how to relate this. What about the covenant promises here? The bedrock promises of scripture that God says, I will be God to you and the God of your children after you. And it's like a bedrock solid promise for covenant homes that we rely on and rest in. And so there's a whole lot here. You know, we're always dealing with God's sovereignty and our responsibility. But here Jesus is saying, look, the warning is, yes, in those covenant promises, God himself promises to nurture your children. At the same time, we can never just presume upon them or think they're just automatic that we avail ourselves of what God gives us, both children and parents. We have responsibility ourselves. We are worshiping beings. Our responsibility is to embrace Christ as he's offered in the gospel. And so it's a summons to us never just to settle into a complacent view of the covenant. And one of the lines I appreciate reading from John Murray this week is just covenant privilege always entails covenant responsibility. They go together. We don't know how exactly, but they go together. Jesus brings division. Third, Jesus urges discernment. And so that's 54 through 56, and Jesus now addresses the crowd. Notice there's a shift, and so he gets even more evangelistic here. And so in the crowd, there are some that are sitting on the fence. There are others that are opposed to him outright. And so he urges them, look, discern what's going on and interpret who I am and what I'm doing. And so he uses this illustration. It's really kind of humorous. He says, look, you pay careful attention to the weather. You like talking about the weather. I think we like talking about the weather. Uh, You're good at forecasting the weather, making decisions based on it. You know when a cloud rises in the west, you better get ready for a thunderstorm. You know when the south wind starts blowing, you better get ready for some scorching heat as the wind goes across the desert and gets heated up. Get ready. You readily understand and act on these weather signs, but you don't understand and you won't act on the signs I've been giving you about my words and my deeds. So he's looking at them and saying, like, who else fulfills the expectations of the Old Testament? Who's spoken with such power among you? Who's interpreted the scriptures so faithfully? Who's demonstrated authority over disease and disability and demons and death? Who's shown the love and grace and the newness of the time of Messiah? Has anybody done it in your midst besides me? And so he rebukes them. He looks at this crowd of people on the fence, against him, critical, cold. 
interested maybe? And he says, it's not that you can't see the signs. It's not that you don't want to see the signs. It's not, it's not that you can't see the signs, it's that you don't want to see the signs. And the reason is you're hypocrites. You say you want something, but when I give it to you, you still won't believe. You demand something more. You just don't want to believe. You don't want it. And I just think of us and our culture that, I mean, we love tracking weather. We love getting on WTVA and forecasting and the radar and all that. And you get some extreme weather coming in, even better. We go to our favorite weatherman and we're glued to the TV, well, you know. We enjoy it, I enjoy it. And so Jesus is looking at us and going, are you, are you that interested and adept at discerning and acting upon Christ in the time he's brought in? He's the most significant, monumental phenomenon in human history. How hypocritical to pretend to make nothing of the remarkable facts of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Take it seriously. That's what he's looking at the crowds and saying. Don't, don't be flipping about it. Take it seriously and act upon it. Which leads to the final point. Jesus presses us to make a decision, 59, uh, 57 to 59. And so again, he's addressing the crowds. It's especially evangelistic here. And he just asks them this question. He goes, and why do you not judge for yourselves what is right? Judge what's right. And what he's saying is, you've heard and seen enough, it's time to make a decision about me. Like fish or cut bait, make a decision. Now think of how Joshua did a similar thing of Israel in the promised land. Look, choose you this day whom you're gonna serve. Like if you wanna serve another God, just make the decision, but I'm serving the Lord. It's not gonna be easy, but I'm serving the Lord. And so this passage about a guy going to a court, it's found in the Sermon on the Mount too, but the point there is, you know, how to love well and how to reconcile well. And some of that's behind this, but it's a really stirring closing to our section because Jesus uses it here as a parable. It's an illustration. And so Jesus envisions two people embroiled in this financial dispute. And he makes it very personal. In verse 59, he says, I tell you, that's singular. He's looking at each individual person and including them in this. And so he's saying, you're all in a very serious predicament. You have an accuser who accuses you of a debt. And you're being taken to the judge to decide it. You're on the way. We're all on the way to the judge to decide it. Jesus says, Okay, given that, while you're on the way to court, do everything you can to settle your debt with your accuser to reconcile with him. If you don't, he'll drag you to the officer, the bailiff, who'll then lock you in debtor's prison and you're just not gonna get out. And he emphatically says, I tell you, again singular, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny, the smallest unit of money there. So by that illustration, Jesus is warning us to make a decision about him. He's saying we all have a court date approaching. It's in our daytimer. You have a court date. And we kind of all know it. That lot's been written 
about our culture, this just latent sense of guilt in our culture. We try to deal with it in different ways and we can't quite, since we don't believe in sin as a, as a nation, we don't know what to do with guilt. We don't know how to find forgiveness, but there's a sense that we're guilty and we don't know what really to do about it. And so we, we all know we're in debt, that we're accused of an unpayable debt really. And we're all on the way to the court, to the judge to decide our case. So the question is, what are we gonna do about it? This court date is what we all most dread to, to die and stand before God, our creator, and to answer to him about what we've done and what we left undone. That is in our agendas and our daytimers. Again, what do we do about it? And Jesus looks at this crowd. He says, you're on the way. I settle with your accuser now. You got time. The deal is your accuser is God, really. God, the just judge of all the earth, because this God is also your gracious and merciful redeemer. He's the one who sent his beloved son to pay your unpayable debt, who took the fire of judgment on your behalf, who was baptized with the flood of God's punishment for you at the cross. He paid the debt in full, testelestai, it is finished. So in view of what he will soon accomplish at the cross, Jesus looks at him and says, look, now's the time to settle, to be reconciled, to get right with God. So how do you do it? Well, you put your faith in me. You let my blood and righteousness be counted for you. You believe on me and you are forgiven of your sin and it settles things. You will need no other argument and no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and Jesus died for me. And so Jesus looks at this crowd. He says, you'll never get out of debt or prison on your own. You can't do it. But with me, you're already released. I have abundant riches and I'm happy to share it with you. So you approach the court day. You don't have to be filled with dread and foreboding. In me, rather, you approach confidently the day of judgment is a day of like victory and rejoicing, knowing that Jesus has taken all God's punishment on your behalf and he's given you all you need to stand before God's court and be vindicated and welcomed and accepted at the throne of justice. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taken you to court because Jesus has settled it on your behalf. Have we done that? Thanks be to God. Let's stand.